Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 450 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of many, many, many books, but her latest one is The Wolf's Howl, a Maven and Reef mystery. How are you, Al? How am I? Well, I'm as an author, I'm mm-hmm. fine. I'm going extremely well. Uh, I finally finished my edit. Everyone can be. I hope you're all cheering for me because you know it's been the longest and most ongoing saga in the history of the world. So I've done it. It's gone. Yay, it's gone back to my publisher. Woo. Fingers crossed. Let's hope that that's going to be my new book coming out next year or maybe the year after. Whatever. Um, as a parent, I've had myself a week. Um, oh. So. My 14-year-old, and I just mm-hmm. need to say 14 because everyone will understand. If you've, if you've ever had a 14-year-old, yeah. particularly a 14-year-old boy in your life, you'll understand mm-hmm. my pain. Uh, he decided that this week, um, having endured lockdown and we've done, and the hair's grown and we're just waiting mm-hmm. for the haircut to come through, he decided that he was going to get his brother and his brother's friend to cut his hair for him on <laughs> Tuesday afternoon. And yes. he decided that he was going to have a mullet. Because you know he's wanted a mullet for a long time, and I've always said no to the mullet. And he said, "Well, I'm, but I'm getting my hair cut soon anyway, so you know what does it matter? It's only hair." And I had that moment of, "Do I step in here and put my foot down and say, don't be ridiculous, or do I choose a teachable moment?" And so in the <laughs> end, I decided on a teachable moment. And so we went through the whole, okay, this is an impulsive life decision and you're going to live with the consequences of this. And he was like, yeah, don't be ridiculous. It's going to be fine. It's only hair. (laughs) So I went out and called my husband and said, we're having a teachable life moment. He went, righto. And I came back, you know, half an hour Mm -hmm. later to the worst haircut I've ever seen. (gasps) I honestly could not be worse. It was almost a scullet. It wasn't even a mullet. Who did it? Who, who, who cut the hair? The, the two older boys. Oh, the boys. brother. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the, the older, well, the older boy's friend who said that he'd done, uh, you know, the brother's friend who said that he'd done these before and whatever. Oh. I just said, I said, when well, he has, it's, it's not, he's not lying. Yeah, and sure. I said to my 14 year old, well, really, you're really going to regret this. No, no, no. It's going to be fine. It's going to grow back. Anyway. So he walked in and like, I almost cried because it was <gasps> like, it just doesn't, because they cut the front. Like it wasn't just gone down mm. the sides to do the, you know, the mullet, I will, which is kind of what I thought they do. They had actually cut the fringe really short. Oh. And I just said to him oh, that, it, look, honestly, mate, like it could not be worse. You look ridiculous. Anyway, he decided he was that it looked good. He was he oh. was going to live with it. Um, and then all his friends, he sent photos to his friends on Snapchat or whatever, and they all came yeah. back and said, yeah, no, that's really bad. <laughs> Oh. So then he had haircut regret and then yes. he wanted to fix it. And I'm like, I, you know, we don't even have the clippers. Like, oh, we can't do it. And you're going to school like that tomorrow because <laughs> I want you to understand the repercussions of making a choice like this. So off he goes to school the next day and he got detention. That's how oh. good the haircut was. Because really? the school, yeah, the school has a no extreme haircut um, oh. rule. And this is an extreme haircut. And not only that, he had to endure, you know, 
the laughing. Yeah. But he, he said, look, I was laughing too, Mum. They were laughing with me and whatever. Um, anyway, we didn't get an opportunity to get it because he can't go to a hairdresser because he hasn't had his second vax yet. No, So he's not course. booked until mid-November. Um, and I said that to him at the time. I said, if you do this now, we cannot fix this for two weeks. And he's like, no, no, it'll be fine. Uh, anyway, it's mm-hmm. not fine. Um, so he got the detention and then he got told yesterday by the assistant principal that uh, – if he didn't get rid of the haircut, he was going to be sitting on detention until he got rid of the haircut. So he came home yesterday. He borrowed some clippers from my mum who does my dad. And my dad's like practically bald, Mm. so there's not a lot of hair. Um, And he now is sporting like the worst crew cut you've ever seen. So that's been my week. Teachable life moments all round, people. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, that's... um... But I'm doing much better at the (laughs) authoring than I am at the parenting. (laughs) Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't what even about know. You? What well, have you been up to? <laughs> what have I been up to? Well, I've had a very different week. Um, uh, no hair, you know, incidences. No hair at all. Yeah. But today, in fact, I blew my PT's mind. I blew my personal trainer's mind. <laughs> yes, There's- yes. Now you could actually see his mind blow twice, what? not just once, but twice in one What did second. you do to blow your personal trainer's mind, Valerie? Number one, mm-hmm. I was talking to him about the word A-W-R-Y. Awry. When your yeah. plans go awry. Yeah. Mind blown because until that point, and I would he just He thought like it was say, Ori, didn't exactly. he? Exactly. He thought exactly. it was Ori. Of course so he did. So you could see his mind blow. And I will say he's a very lovely young chap and very intelligent and very nice. Um, but, yes, yeah, so number one, that word, Ori. That was word of the week, Ori. N- number two, <laughs> number two, like ten minutes later, um, I blew his mind with the spelling of Segway. I said oh. spell Segway. Oh, and, said, and it's not it, the upright thing that brooms along yes that's right not the thing that you ride on with the wheels well he I said spell Segway and he said s-e-g-w-a-y and I said well actually have I got a story for you babe (laughs) yes (laughs) exactly my personal training sessions are just parallel okay so it's s-e-g-u-e and he just sort of looked and you could see the cogs turning and he's like no and I'm like Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing, though. So Segway's a word he's only heard, he's never seen. Yes. And awry is a no, no, word No, 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 no. Like- Actually, no. He says, oh, my God, I've always seen that word and I've just thought it was Sieg. So he oh. has seen it. But that's because it's interesting, though, because there there are, you know, every once in a while you'll see a thread come up on Twitter about this. What's a word that you mispronounced forevermore mm. because you'd only ever seen it written? I yeah. pronounce, I mispronounced decorative for years when I was about, you know, in my late teens. What did you say? Decorative. Oh. It was decorative okay. for <laughs> like several years until someone said, you've got to stop saying that. <laughs> But I'd only ever seen it written. I had never heard anyone actually use it. And I'd be like, well, that's very decorative. 
<laughs> so you know, there's that. So when I when you talk about Ori, that's the kind of word that if you well, see it, if you've true. only ever seen it written, you wouldn't know what it was. Yes, would you? yes, because you saw it all the time in reading like Enid Blyton books or famous five books where their plans would go awry. Awry, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So there you are. <laughs> the English well, language, hey? Go yes, figure. That's what I've been up to, so there you go. But we, shall we move on to uh, I think the we should because I really feel like we haven't actually got to, you know, <laughs> for, for, <laughs> for a podcast called So You Want to Be a Writer, we haven't actually got there yet, have we? But we have been talking about words. And it's episode 450. Like, that's pretty. <laughs> you'd think we'd be better at this by now. <laughs> All right. So with Christmas coming up, make sure that you are aware of all of your deadlines in terms of posting your Christmas presents. And one thing that you should be aware of is when you need to post your mail to Santa. Mm. Isn't that right, Al? Because Absolutely. You, we'll put the link in the show notes, but Australia Post has Santa mail and there are specific de- deadlines and your kids can write to Santa and actually send the letter to the North Pole. And the great thing is you can track your letter's journey to the North Pole, you know, mm. with apps and stuff. And um, and it's it's a, it's a easy address, Santa, North Pole, 9999, you know. Uh, and uh, you, if you post before a certain date, you're going to get a reply from Santa. Do you know, I have to say, again, when we're on hours parenting fails, um, <laughs> so my, <laughs> you didn't, there never used to be apps and things, which is a good thing, because the boys yeah. used to write their letters to Santa, because this, this has been an Australia Post thing for, you know, many years now, and mm. the boys used to write their letters to Santa, and there'd be a little mailbox at the door of the post office, and oh, they'd give, so they'd write their letters, and they'd give them to me, and I would take them, and I would carry them around in my bag for about two weeks, because that's the kind of mum I am, and then I'd <laughs> finally remember to stick them in the box, and I mm. would be late and they would receive their replies from Santa on about January the 8th pretty much every year (laughs) so even if you're late you still get a reply but not necessarily before Christmas not before Christmas yes And speaking of Christmas, if you if there is an aspiring writer in your life who would like to find out more about the world of writing there's also Alison and my book so yes. you want to be a writer? Yes, so signed from us and everything. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, you can find it at uh, writercentercomau slash book. And it's So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. So this actually is a blueprint that will take you step by step into what you need to do if you're thinking about just dipping your toe in the waters of the world of writing and publishing. And um, it's got lots of tips from Alison and myself, but also tips from uh, authors that we've, you know, met and talked to and um, and interrogated along the way. <laughs> mm, interrogated, yes, in the nicest possible way. Yes, you can find out more at writercentre.com.au slash book. But, of course, we'll put the link in the show notes as well. Now, oh, you yes. also have I do. a special Yes, offer. I'm just going to jump in there with the segue before you even mention segue. the segue. Yeah, I also have a special offer on at the moment until the 30th of November for signed copies of A.L. Tate novels. So all of my, all eight of my novels are 
included in the special offer. You can bundle them and save money um, or you can just buy individual books. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes. I should have a, a nice little pretty earl for this, but I do not. Um, but alisontake.com special offer, will, will you should be able to find it that way if you are looking for it. But the best way will be just to go to the show notes and click on it and you will find special offer signed copies of AL Tate novels. Now, I also want to say a big hello and shout out to the almost 500 people that came to our recent uh, creative coaching session on romance writing, which was a free session that we held for people in our community. And um, it was absolutely fascinating. So it was a chat with uh, Pamela Freeman and um, Carly Anthony and uh, all about the world of romance writing, which is such an interesting world to delve into. Some people... Oh, it's big business because it's the biggest, biggest selling genre in fiction. Um, And uh, romance stories just never, there's there's just no end to them because people are always wanting them because they're great feel-good stories. And I wanted to mention something that uh, is an interesting point is that there is a difference between a romance and a love story. So just because your book might have, Uh, a romance in it and might have a love story in it it doesn't necessarily mean it's romance Mm -hmm. technically a romance well a romance novel technically is one that has a happy ending it has a happily ever after um a love story may or may not have a happy happy ending and Mm -hmm. one of the examples that was mentioned in the creative coaching session was that romeo and juliet is not a romance because and this is not a spoiler because this story's been around for hundreds of years. <laughs> spoiler. But you know they die at the end. So it is not a romance, it's a love story that unfortunately ends quite tragically. It's but a if this yes, well yes. But it is if it end if it ended after they got married, then it's a romance. So big difference between a romance and a love story. It's very important to get all of the conventions right and all of the tropes right if you're interested in writing about romance. And, of course, you can check out the course um, at writercentre.com.au slash romance if you want to find out a little bit more about the course and how to get into the ins and outs of the world of romance. All right, let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of Showtime by Judy Nunn. Judy Nunn's best-selling novel will take you from the cotton mills of England to the magnificent theatres of Melbourne on a journey through the golden age of Australian show business. Enter stage right, brothers Will and Max Worthing and their wives Mabel and Gertie. The family arrives from England in the 1880s with little else but the masterful talents that will see them rise from simple travelling performers to sophisticated entrepreneurs. Enter stage left, their rivals Carlo and Rube. Childhood friends since meeting in a London orphanage, the two men men have fought their way to the top and are now producers of the hugely popular Big Show Bonanza. But waiting in the wings, comedy, tragedy, passion and betrayal, economic depression, the Black Death and the horrors of World War One. Exactly. Exactly. So we have three copies of Showtime to give away. Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 15th of November. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, mm. just like my PT, I are you like ready? I done the word. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we peaked earlier, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> 
Let's do it. <laughs> Are you ready for the word of the week? So ready, Val. So ready. Okay. Disembogue. That's D-I-S-E-M-B-O-G-U-E. Disembogue. Why is it not disembogway? Bogway. <laughs> Bogway. See, this is where it all goes pear-shaped for people. I know. It like, doesn't English make any language. sense. I know. I know. Anyway. So, well, it's not disembogue. It's disembogue. And it means, well, do you know what it means? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> so, it means to empty or discharge by pouring forth the contents or, in the case of a river or a stream, to flow out or discharge at the mouth. So, how would is you it use like it vomiting? in a sentence? Well, like, you could. Are you disemboguing if you vomit? Potentially, you could use it, you know, in that mm. figu- figuratively, figuratively in that sense. So, how would you use it really in a sentence? This is from a real description of Manly Beach Lagoon from the Sydney Morning Herald in 1858, found on Trove. And if you haven't discovered Trove, which is the online archive of Australian newspapers, you can access it for free from like your state library. Here's a sentence. A comparatively small bay forms its eastern termination where a well-wooded creek finally disembogues into the strand. Uh-huh. Yes. Did you? Disembogue. I, I, we just need to take a moment here. Wow. I, I have this picture of you, like, going, I need to find someone using the word <laughs> disembogue. I know. I will trawl through the papers until I get to 1858 where I will <laughs> finally discover it in a newspaper. Is that what wow. happened? Sometimes, you know, when it's Sometimes two o'clock lucky. in the morning <laughs> and you just get go down the rabbit warren <laughs> and then three hours later you think, oh, you should go to bed because you right. have to wake up in another two okay. hours. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you might do that, but the rest of us <laughs> do not. Anyway, continue. It, but you know, when you were you were using your example that um, uh, about vomiting, there are other ways that you can use it. So this is a more poetic use. This was from a North Australian newspaper in 1884. Like oh, I said, rabbit far Warren. more recent. Yeah. Yes. For me, he replied, pressing her hand, the charms of life disembogue new scintillations of yearning when I catalogue what we might enjoy in the long evening of bliss opening to us two souls. Oh, Lord. That's just just word vomit. (laughs) There you go. Word disemboguing. All right. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Here's what Astrid Schultz says. I'd always loved writing, but it had taken a bit of a backseat while I was working in film and pursuing my career. And I tried a few times to to write a different story, but I usually would get stuck around 20 to 25,000 words. And I didn't know or have the tools to kind of continue with that process to see the manuscript through. So that's what really led me to looking at a course to push through to the end. So the first course that I signed up was for creative writing stage one. It was just a great starting point of Acknowledging that this was something I wanted to take seriously, it was something that I was investing my time into, 
The things I found most useful about Creative Writing One was actually being in a classroom environment with other people who had the same desires and aspirations to be published as I did. So it also gave me a wonderful network. It was just this really wonderful time where, you know, you set aside certain hours a week and you would go into this very supportive environment and learn about something that you're extremely passionate about. So you get to keep that community alive the Facebook groups to have to support you through your writing career. I enrolled in several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and each one gave me some sort of knowledge or skill or advice that I didn't know about whatever the topic was, whether it was creative writing in general, how to write a novel, how to write history, mystery or magic and it really kind of gave me this general understanding and base for going out into the world with my manuscripts and hoping to get published. I did envision myself being a published author ever since I was a young kid. And I'm so excited to say that I am a published author. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. All right, so shall we move on to our writer in residence this week, Al? Yes. Well, this week we're talking to Mark Smith, Australian YA author, whose uh, books from an earlier series are actually on the school curriculum. Um, we're talking about his new novel, which is called If Not Us. Um, but we had a bit of a chat too about he, he used to be an English teacher, so he's now a full-time writer, but he used to teach in classrooms and things. And we talked about you know, the difference between standing up as an author and talking about your books and, the, and, and being an English teacher and talking about your books, among the many other things, of course. Um, but I hope that you enjoy this. Mark Smith is an award-winning author. He lives, works and surfs on Victoria's surf coast. The first book in his acclaimed winter trilogy, The Road to Winter, is widely taught in secondary schools and loved by readers of all ages. And Wilder Country, the second book of the trilogy, won the 2018 Indie Book of the Year for Young Adults. His latest work, If Not Us, is a standalone contemporary novel. Welcome to the program, Mark Smith. Thanks very much for having me, Alison. All right, we're going to roll back a little bit and we're going to go back to the beginning because what we love most of all on this podcast is a publishing story, how I came to be published, my first novel. So how did your first novel come to be published? Well, I should say, should say to begin with that, uh, you know, um, my road to publication was not typical of most authors. Um, it happened very quickly for me and it was my first manuscript. So up until I, I wrote a manuscript, before I wrote a manuscript, for about two or three years I'd, been, I'd gone the short story route. So I'd had quite a number of short stories published, about 20 or so, and they were all, you know, adult contemporary literary fiction, I suppose, is what you call them. Um, but I always had in the back of my mind, having been an English teacher for a long time, that I would like to write a novel for that, um, you know, sort of, I guess, 12 to 15-year-olds in particular. And um, one, that, one that was, number one, was a page turner. So we could actually get the kids through to read it. And then secondly, to um, have some issues in there that they could happily discuss um, so I took some time to stop writing short stories for, for 12 months, put this manuscript together, which became The Road to Winter. And I had, I had no idea of how to get it published. So I, um, I sent it to two publishers, I think. Uh, one was Black Ink, who, were, who initially uh, made me an offer. And just on the, on the 
you know, I think it was the first three chapters of the manuscript. And then I put it into the Slush Pilot text publishing as well. So um, by some miracle, and, you know, it was picked up off the Slush Pile. And I know what the story was. It was uh, one of the senior editors who was leaving the office on a Friday afternoon and wanted something to read on the train on the way home. So uh, went to the Slush Pile, picked up my manuscript and took it along with her. I brought it back in on the Monday morning, showed it around, got back in touch with me uh, to um, send the rest of the manuscript because they only had the first three chapters. And it's it sort of snowballed very quickly from there. And I ended up, I think it was about a two-week period, uh, I, I guess. And I had a, I was offered a three-book deal. And and an advance. So, like I said, this is in, this is not typical, kids. This is so, the, this is the Cinderella slush pile story, yeah, right there. It is the Cinderella. It is the Cinderella slush pile story. And I always like to put that qualifier there, especially for young writers and emerging writers, um, because it doesn't. It very very rarely happens this way. Did you know it was three books? Like, had you um, submitted it as the first book of a trilogy? Like, did you know that there were going to be three of them, or had you written it? And, you know, there was just options there for there to be more. I had only one. I had the one manuscript. I hadn't even thought about the possibility of a trilogy at that stage. Um, but when I sat down with text, they saw originally they thought two books. And by the time I was halfway through the second book, they'd offered me a three-book deal, but they hadn't actually stipulated what the third book would be. Mm. And by the time I was halfway through the second book, I actually said, listen, I think this has got legs for a trilogy, which they backed straight away, which was fantastic. Um, and in fact, they've backed, you know, they've backed me all the way. And um, hopefully it's paid off for them because the, the book is, as you know, is taught in schools all around the country, the first book of the trilogy. Um, so the first book is called The Road to Winter, and we are going to get to your new book, but let's just mm -hmm. we'll just investigate here a little bit yeah. further. Um, what inspired it and how much of it, how much of it would, like as an English teacher, high school English teacher, you're sitting there, you're observing over years and years and years what kids are doing, what they're reading, what they're talking about, what they're interested in. How much of that was in the back of your mind when you were writing that first book? It's, yeah, I, I wrote this book, what, six years ago now, mm. and it's hard to think back to that time, but I, I'm very aware of something that did happen to me at the beginning of the process, and that was um, I was teaching, but I was actually head of a residential campus down on the west coast of Victoria working with 15-year-old boys, solely with 15-year-old boys. And I remember we had a what video fun. night on yeah. – <laughs> Um, we'd had a video night on Thursday nights and I showed them the video of tomorrow when the war began. Mm. And, and before I started, I said, oh, hang on a minute, can put your hand up if any of you, if you have read tomorrow when the war began, you know, none of them put their hands up. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I, I actually took for the next half hour or so before we put the video on, I talked to them about what they were reading or what they weren't reading. And so very few of them did any reading that was outside the curriculum. They had very little interest in reading um, other than what they were forced to read. Um, so, and I sort of had that in the back of my mind and a couple of sessions later with them, I just said, look, throw ideas at me. If you, if you, you know, what, what sort of a book would you want to read? And they're throwing all these ideas. And of course, it, like they're, they're throwing me ideas that are virtually in every young adult book that's ever been, ever been written. You know, they wanted, they wanted depth in the characters. They wanted to be able to recognize themselves in some of the characters. They wanted it to be a page turner. They wanted some action. Um, so 
that was that was very much in the forefront of my mind while I was writing the book. Um, I'm not entirely sure that I knew that it was a YA novel at the time, and there was, you know, the the original manuscript was ninety thousand words and it was published at sixty thousand words. So. Um, one of the things that Tex did with it when they got hold of the manuscript or they contracted me was that they, you know, you're putting your hand, you're putting your, your manuscript in the hands of the experts, basically. And I was a newbie, never having been published before. So they are the ones who found the spot in the market for it. And that meant catering, you know, a lot of what had been written in the original manuscript to that particular market. And they were absolutely right. Um, even though it was hard to let go of some of the detail and um, and you know thirty thousand words cut, cut out of the, mm. the original story. Mm. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you sort of like you've written a novel that you wanted to engage a readership outside of what they were forced to read at school, and now mm. they're being forced to read it at <laughs> school. <laughs> the irony is not. Lost oh, the irony! Me. I love it. It, it, um, it is interesting because you know, and I. It's almost like, you know, if you, if you want to curse a book, put it on curriculum because the kids will automatically think, oh, if it's on curriculum, you know, it's something they, they're forcing us to read. So how does a – what is the process of that? Like how does a book end up on the curriculum? What is the, you know, how does it happen? I, well, is I there think a if there was a – yeah, it is a mystery. Um, I, um, I was very conscious of – um, I, as soon as I was published, I signed up to uh, a, you know, an agency, a speaking agency, mm-hmm. um, and they started me getting gigs in schools. And um, I was very conscious of continually promoting the book, um, always engaging with the English teachers, always going to the library, always introducing myself and always introducing my book. Um, and there is a, uh, there was a particular gap in the market I guess is, is one way of saying it um, and that's what the publisher had identified but I think uh, and the publisher supported me in all of this but largely it was my own legwork and you know I, I'm visiting and I'm still visiting or online now but 60 70 schools a year um, and not only promoting my own book but promoting you know young adult literature in general um, and trying to encourage kids to to get involved with it so let me ask you this then when you started out because you know you've got a background in teaching you've been an English teacher all these years now you're going to schools you've got your first novel it's all very exciting got your first novel you're going to do school visits as an author did you approach it differently I think the first thing I'd say, Alison, is that it's a huge advantage having been a teacher I think so. and going going into schools and doing presentations because um, you automatically have a very good understanding of where the kids are at, you know, how to read the room, um, all of those things that, that are innate from 30, 30 odd years of teaching. Um, I, did, I did approach it slightly differently and that was, um, you know, it's, you've only got to hold these kids for an hour. And as a teacher, you have this ongoing relationship with them that the last last years, you know, one mm. year, two years, however many years. Um, all I, I I have to do a high impact one hour, and I, I call it the full dancing bear. Um, and it's the full dancing bear getting in there and engaging those kids, and you can do that in a way that a teacher can't because they they have them again and again and again and again. Mm. So there's the there's the novelty of being an author to begin with. Um, and you play on that. I definitely play on that. 
but I think it's it's also one of the most rewarding and fulfilling things that I've ever done is to be able to go into a school where these kids have engaged, they've got the book on curriculum, they've engaged with it, and they just want to ask you questions. You know, I, some of my sessions I could I could hand over entirely the questions. And yeah. they would just go for it. Yeah. I've always um, said that about any school visit, though, I think. It's like because, I, you know, you, you do your thing, but you have to leave that time. And you know that once they get on a roll, it's like the first questions can sometimes take a little minute. But once yeah. they, those hands start going up, you could stand there for an hour and just yeah. – just yeah. do that, couldn't you? Like they, they yeah. don't actually want much more from you than, so how does yeah. the book cover, you know, because I'm obviously talking to young kids, yeah. how does yeah. the book cover come together, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It is interesting, the things that they want to know, it's not always about the themes and the ideas and the issues. Um, it's often about, you know, how much money do you make as an oh, author? Yeah. Is it, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, would be a, that would be the top five, wouldn't it? Top five <laughs> yeah. question, how much do you yeah. make? <laughs> yeah. I always include that in my presentation anyway. I don't want to crush anyone's dreams, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we sh- let's not talk about it. Um, yeah. All right, so let's let's talk then about your new novel, uh, If Not mm. Us, which is just recently out, and it's um, it's a standalone. It, it, uh, whereas sort of the Winter Trilogy is that sort of dis- slightly dystopian sort of feel, mm. this is very much a contemporary novel. Um, so tell us a little bit about it. And tell us a little bit about what inspired it. Yeah, probably the inspiration for it, um, firstly, there were two things. Number one, um, I've been involved in in environmental movements for 30, 40 years um, as an organiser, doing publicity, um, organising rallies, etc. And so I had that background um, that I I wanted to bring to the the writing, but um, I... The, the topic of climate change, it kind of disturbs me that in most Australian literature, and I'm talking about YA and adult literature, it tends to be dealt with in a dystopian context, which is, sorry, it's all over. We just have to adapt to this and, and try and survive in this, in this different world. Um, and, I, and I see that, I was thinking, well, how will teenagers, how do teenagers, you know, um, relate to that? I, I was very keen to... Um, and we'll talk about how difficult it is to deal with these sorts of issues without preaching. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I wanted these kids to feel as though, no, you know, it, don't despair. There is still the chance to act, but we need to do it now. And, and even one of the characters in the novel says, don't you understand? We're the last generation. It's up to us. We've got to do this. Um, and that's what I wanted to come, wanted to come through. And the second part of that is that there were, prior to COVID, there were the, the fantastic um, school strikes for climate, which were mm. filling cities with these kids that had all walked out of school on the same day. And they were, and I went to the one in Geelong and it was just so passionate and vibrant and the kids were so on top of the issues and aware of the way in which they weren't being listened to. And I actually went home from that rally and that afternoon I started writing the book. Because there, I could see this passion that was there, and and it was passion driven not by fear. It was passion driven by knowledge and understanding, as you know, of not as I said, of not being listened to. 
Which is interesting because one of the things I thought when I first read this, and it, um, I know that there's a bit of crossover between this podcast and my other podcast, which is Your Kids Next Read, and yep. Megan Daly, my co-host on that, and I had a, quite a conversation about this because it's one thing to capture the passion and the protests and all of that sort of thing, but when you write a novel, you kind of got to come up with an answer. Um, and I just wondered how you approached that without preaching and without um, – and, and to, to kind of – to give kids the opportunity to walk away from reading the book feeling like maybe what they did would make a difference, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I understand entirely. Um, well, first of all, you know, it's such a fine line to draw when you're dealing with these sorts of issues not to sound preachy and not to allow your the authorial voice to come through too strongly. Um, so I know from my, my time as an educator that if you want – I, I really strongly believe that if you want kids to engage with an issue, personalize it for them. Mm. And so you personalize it through the characters in the book. So they become engaged with the characters. They feel empathy towards the characters and then they listen to what the characters are saying and how the characters are responding to this particular situation. Um, and it's like they're on their side already. So you need to build those characters carefully so that the kids feel that connection, the readers feel that connection. Um, as for, you know, you've got to be very careful of making grandiose statements too, particularly when you draw a novel like that to a close. And I was very cautious of that. Um, and, you know, there's a scene towards the end where the two principal protagonists are sitting on the beach and, and they acknowledge, look, you know, we've been successful in this campaign, but it's only one small thing. We need to do more. So I, what I did want to do is to demonstrate the way in which standing up can make a difference. Mm. Um, but you are, you're not going to change the world in, you know, through one campaign. It's going to take resilience and it's going to take perseverance and it's got to be it's got to continue to build from from. But but every campaign begins somewhere small. Mm. And that's what I wanted to. That's what I wanted to make clear through these through these two characters through Hess and Fenner. Okay, so the other thing I found quite interesting about it, and um, you know, for someone who writes like I write, sort of you know historical based fantasy sort of stuff, um, mm -hmm. you've gone from this sort of dystopian vibes, you know, post kind of uh, where we're at, with, and into um, very very contemporary and. Writing a timeless story set in the present is actually really difficult because you have to consider technology, language, current affairs, like all the stuff you're writing about, you know, because your book's going to take at least a year to come out even after you've finished yeah. it. All of that's kind of like it's almost history by the time you're, by the time you're done. So um, how, did you, how did you balance that? Like how did you manage that? Yeah, it's a. It's really. It, I'm. I'm so glad that you picked up on that because it was. Uh, it was sort of conflicted when we were when I was writing it, and then when we were doing the editing as well. Particularly around, you know, there's a there's a small amount of statistics about you know um, the degree of temperature change, for instance, in the next however many years, and it does date it mm. to an extent. So, um, so you have to. That has to be blended carefully into. Everything else that's going on, I, I think that that the kid, you know, kids who read this book, I think will go away with as much um, uh, as much of the, you know, hopefully they're inspired to act for themselves, um, but also inspired um, by the characters and by the story because it's the 
if you like, the issues are buried in the story and, mm. you, and, and it's the story which carries it along. It's the relationship between these two kids that carries, that, that carries it along. Um, and every now and again, that pops these little statistics or these little ideas and, and, then, and then it's carried along by the, by the storyline and the character and the plot. Um, and it's, a, it's such a fine balance. And I know that, you know, as soon as any of these kids feel as though they're being preached to, they're going to throw the book away. They're going to put it down and they're not going to do it. So, um, so definitely um, this is much more of a risk in terms of dating the book because mm. the, my previous three books, when you're writing dystopian, um, you know, and we we're very careful there not to even place that in a particular era. Um, so it's, it, it may, we'll see how it goes. We'll see. Um, but I think that one thing we were aware of is that, is that the issue is not going to go away. The issue mm. is going to become more and more prevalent. And especially once COVID um, hopefully moves into the background and we can see even now in the media at the moment with, you know, with the climate talks in Glasgow happening at the end of the month or next month, um, that it's starting to, to well up again. And I think we will see the kids' cli- cli- you know, climate strikes, will, they'll be out on the street again, it'll build up again and it'll take off again. So another challenge that you that you come across, and this is not just in contemporary stories, that this is writing YA of any kind, I guess, you know, wherever you're at, is just that knowledge of you're writing a coming-of-age story for a contemporary teen when, let's face it, you haven't been a teen for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, not just to put too fine a point on it, but how do you how are you stay, how do you kind of tap into that and then also stay in touch with that? what it's like to be a teen now as opposed to maybe what it was like to be a teen, you know, when you were a teen. Yeah, and look, that's become a lot, I must admit, it's become a lot more difficult for me because I've stopped teaching. I finished teaching two years ago Mm. um, um, to devote myself to writing entirely. And so that has become more difficult. Um, And I I have my, my, uh, my first readers are often my kids. And they're, even they now are in their 20s, so um, <laughs> even they're moving beyond it. Um, but with this one, I did have two fantastic uh, young Dutch women um, who, I, um, who are the daughters of um, good friends of ours from the Netherlands. And they had a gap year out here um, probably about three or four years ago. So at that stage, they would have been 18. Yeah. And um, I drew on them. I drew on their experience of Australia. I drew on their perceptions of, you know, of the environment, of the way Australians speak. And um, and they were they were so helpful. Um, and so you've got to you've got to have some sort of connection like that. Yeah. I think. And you and I've also got uh, young nieces who are who are 15, 16, and so they help me as well. And they'll certainly, particularly in, in language, um, I'm reasonably savvy with technology, but mm. there's so many things now that, that happen so quickly. Mm. Um, that, and when you think about it, most of like my publishers probably, you know, you know my editor, I should say, is, is not that much younger than me, so... And here we are trying to work through this manuscript and have we got the technology stuff right. Mm. But there will always be resources that we can draw on that will help us out with that. Mm. It's like researching another country almost, isn't it? You've kind of really <laughs> got to go into it with that with that approach. So one thing that I felt like you probably didn't need to do a lot of research about was the surfing element of your story um, and your your passion for that and your kind of, you know, there's a real authenticity around those scenes and I can tell that you're, 
into it, if you know, get what I'm saying. Yeah. But what I possibly felt might be quite difficult, and uh, maybe I'm wrong, was capturing in words something that you obviously love, like a feeling that you really love. Was that difficult? Yeah, it's they were probably they are probably the most difficult parts of the book to write because mm. um, it's fine if your entire audience was surface and they you know and they understood the terminology um, and what you the feeling and what you're actually describing, but the majority of my readers won't be. So you've got to maintain the authenticity through using a certain amount of terminology associated with, with surfing and, as you say, what it feels like to be in that environment. But you've also got to be able to transport someone who has never surfed into that environment. Um, and it's a very difficult balancing act. And I remember, you know, one of the, one of the first reads of the manuscript by my editor, you know, one of her first comments was, uh, you need to pull back the terminology. You need to pull back the terminology and try and be more inclusive without losing authenticity. And that's the balancing act. Mm. Um, and I think it, it's often harder. It's often hard to write um, for a general audience about something that you are incredibly passionate about. And it's like second nature to you mm. because you have all of this assumed knowledge that you can't use. Mm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Like, and, it's, and I guess it's that quintessential Aussie, like it really gives the book that quintessential Aussie small town feel to it. Like as someone who lives on the coast, um, you know, that, that surfing stuff is very much, you know, an integral part of a life in a place like this, isn't it? Yeah, and it also gave me the opportunity to have that parallel narrative um, that deepens the character of, of mm. Hess mm. with his father having died, um, with him being raised by by a single mum who hates the fact that he surfs because the surf took her husband. Uh. Um, and then, and the great opportunity towards the end of the book to, you know, um, to put in descriptions of him challenging himself and, and being challenged um, by going out in huge surf at the break where his father disappeared um, and, you know, creating that analogy with him having to confront his fears around climate change and standing up in the town as well. Um, so I think the the two narratives worked really well together um, and they complemented each other. All right, so switching gears a little bit, how mm -hmm. do you promote your work? Like your readership is very active on social media. Like your readership is, there's a lot of online. Mm -hmm. Are you mm -hmm. active with engaging with them, you know, in social media like that or do you rely more on, you know, school visits when you can or how do you, what sort of, you know, where does the promotion aspect fit into your year, shall we say? Yeah, look, it's, it's a combination of all of those things, Alison. Um, I think it's one of the things that, that uh, people who haven't been published yet underestimate is that is the role of promotion. Once you do get published, it, you know, I, as, a, as, a, as an unpublished writer, I probably always thought, oh, well, you, you put your book out, you put your feet up, you relax and allow the book to, you know, to sell. And it, as we know, that nothing could be further from the truth. And mm. there's so much hard work that needs to be done once your book comes out. How you engage is I do do a lot through schools. Um, and as you know, you know you've, you've probably got you've probably got a two month window. You've probably got that window in the month leading up to publication where you start to draw more and more attention to your book and encouraging pre-orders, so that there's that eruption when it comes out. And then you probably have a window of about a month when you're doing events 
which are all online now, which mm. makes them a little bit harder. Yeah. Um, and you're trying to, you know, social media, you've got to find the balance there between not overwhelming your followers with, you know, posts every hour of here's my awesome book and here's a review. And, um, but at the same time, making sure that they're identifying with that cover, that, that, that the cover is working for you, the cover design, they're seeing it again and again um, without, them seeing it and thinking oh god another one you know yeah um and uh, you know my my social media followers are a combination i, I would think most of my social media com um, followers would be people who are um you know we know in young, the funny thing about writing young adults is that i think a, we don't think about is that the people who buy our books are not necessarily the people who read them mm. because we have so many like our, our books first have to, they have to hook, they have to engage with teachers, librarians, parents, um, because they're the ones who are going to get the, oh God, librarians, how important are librarians, get so that important. book into the library. Um, and so, you know, my publisher does a great job with that. They, I use every school connection that I've, got, I've built up over however many years um, and we get pre-order copies out to them. Um, advanced copies so that they start to build a bit of buzz as, as well and obviously we do the same for booksellers but um, but the strength the strength of my following in in young adults is through schools mm, and so okay. we've, we've recognized that we recognize that through teachers and I make sure that every time I go into a school I find the head of the English department and I talk to them I don't push my book on them but I make a personal connection um, and um, you know Kids, kids will obviously follow on social media as well um, if they're engaged with your books. I think that there are a lot of, I don't know whether you find this, but, but readers want to, once they, once they hook into your books and they really like your books, they want to know something about the person behind the book, yeah. who's writing this. Um, and so you've got to find that balance out there on social media of not, not giving away too much of your privacy, yeah. but at the same time engaging and saying, hey, look, this is who I am. And this is what I'm, you know, this is what I'm involved in and uh, this is the way I live my life. It's just a full-time job, right? It is a full-time job, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think that's what, and, and a lot of that is not paid work, it's promotional work, yeah. you know, where, um, which hopefully then is reflected in book sales. So what's next? Like what are you, are you working on something new or is it sort of more about focusing on just, you know, getting this, giving this one a good opportunity to get out in the world or what happens now? I think that we're all in the same boat as authors, aren't we? But we know we've got to start that next project and have it going, um, you know, before, uh, be almost before the, your book's out. So I've got the book out at the moment, which is great, and promotion seems to be going well and it's getting picked up. Um, but I'm also, what about 45,000, 50,000 words into a new manuscript, um, which I started while I was editing the current one. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, it's a little bit, it's, it's very different, um, but it's, um, I, it's interesting because I, I was kind of, uh, when I started writing this and it's, I'm not sure whether it's young adult, you know, I think it may be more of an adult novel, mm -hmm. um, but I was really, you know, interested about, I went looking for novels that are set in schools. Um, and it seems to me to be such a natural place for, for great stories to take place, but there are not a great deal and not not very many of them that I could find really um yeah like that are set actually like this is set in a high school and what's going on in that high school I know they're out there 
Um, but from the oh, a novel for adults a, set in a, a novel high school. For adults. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, wow. And uh, so it's around uh, it's around a, a tragedy that this school has to deal with that happens on an outdoor education excursion. So I'm drawing on again. I'm drawing on. Um, my life as an outdoor ed teacher, as a you know, as administrator in schools, and trying to bring that all together and make a, I guess, make a thriller out of it. Mm, sounds interesting. Write what you know. That's what they say, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah. We're going to finish up for today. Where can people find you online if they would like to connect with you and see more about your surfing life and other things? Yeah, sure. I'm on I'm on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, so go there. Um, I've just, uh, after multiple um, invasions, I've, I've actually <laughs> shut down a Facebook page in the last couple of weeks, Just and it, it really wasn't working for me anyway. Um, so go looking on, on Twitter and on, on Instagram, and that's at, at Mark Smith Author. You'll find me there. Fantastic. All right, and we're going to finish up today with our last question that we ask every single person who you know sits in the interrogation seat here. Um, <laughs> what are your three top tips for writers, for aspiring authors? Three top tips would be... Um, Number one is to practice your craft and, and, and don't expect to have a manuscript picked up until you have really established yourself in that craft. For me, that was the short story route, as I talked about earlier. Mm. So number, number one to me was build your resume, build your literary resume. And I remember a piece of advice that I got from the wonderful Tony Jordan, um, who said, um, you know, work at it hard enough and build your resume to the point where Publishers are asking themselves why they are not publishing you. Mm. So get your, you know, and that means entering competitions, um, which are fantastic because they're judge blind, um, and getting your, your work out to journals, magazines, whatever it might be, get your name out there. Um, that's number one. Um, number two is um, that I, I guess... Um, in terms of the actual process of the writing, I have so many little mantras that I, that I use myself. Um, but, but for me, it's, it's don't let the words get in the way of the story. Um, allow, it's all about the story. Get the story out first. You can go back and embellish it in whatever way you want to. But for young writers and, and new and emerging writers, it's about the story. Never lose sight of the fact that it's about the story. Um, and again, whether you're going to be inserting issues or other ideas into it, the story comes first. Mm. Um, and once you uh, once you do get a you know a foot inside the door, um, don't rely on other people to do the hard slog for you. You really need to, even when you're a published author, um, and you have the support of a publishing house, publicists um, that your publicist is probably working with. I don't know how many other authors and you're only one. Um, so you need to do a lot of the hard slog for yourself. You need to be prepared to, um, to in, in some ways, kind of um, get used to the idea of pumping up your own tyres, which as, a, as an author was one of the hardest things for me to come to terms with um, because I've come up through a very a large family. We're all very self-deprecating. Don't get ahead of yourself. Um, and, and yet as an author, you do have to do a lot of self-promotion to get yourself out there and get your work out there, um, so uh, I found that I found that very difficult. I think I've kind of overcome that now, but I still don't feel particularly comfortable with a lot of self-promotion. But I realise it's just it comes with the territory. 
part of the job. Brilliant. Those are great tips. Thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you very much for your time today. I'm sure that uh, our listeners have really enjoyed the interview. I have, that's for sure. And we look forward to seeing what happens next for Mark Smith. Great. Thanks very much for having me, Alison. I really appreciate it. All right, there we go. Mark Smith, always great to have so many different authors on the show. Yes. Uh, So, Al, what are you doing in the coming week? Uh, Not taking my kid to the hairdressers, clearly, Mm. so I'm doing that. Um, I'm not sure what I'm doing. I'm going to be playing with some ideas. I've got some new things to work on. Um, I finally got myself into a position where my computer works uh, and I've, you know, done the edit and so I'm kind of clear and I've got – um, oh, I've also got a new Writer's Centre course that I'm going to be starting to pull together as well. So Exciting. Those are the things that I'll be doing. What about you? Cool. Oh, what will I be doing? Okay, well, today I've got two stories that I need to file for, you know, some of the freelance writing that I'm doing. And then I've got my to-be-read pile is looking a bit dire, so I need to <laughs> make my way through that. Mm, and, good luck. Um, yes, and I'm um, watching – this new show on, oh, I actually don't remember which streaming service, Acapulco. What's it Acapulco. Oh, I haven't heard of it. Yeah, it's just it. fun. Lots of bright colours, many, many bright colours. <laughs> I watched um, the Fire series on the ABC. Oh, yes. Did you watch that? I Have did. We talked about this? No. Did we discuss this at any stage? Gosh, it was I don't good. Think so. It was good. Yes. It was really, really it good. It was very good. Mm. I was absolutely, because um, I kind of started watching it, you know, having lived down here through it, mm. like the South yes. Coast went through it, um, I was kind of a bit like, oh, I'm not sure about this, you know, is it too soon, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I was I was in from the opening episode oh, and I, very good. I binged, I kind of waited a while, so I had four to binge to start with and then I had to wait, you know, the two weeks for the last couple. Um, mm. But, jeez, it was good, like really good. Yeah. If you haven't watched it um, and you are, you know, if you've been humming and hawing or humming and whoring or umming and ahring or whatever <laughs> about it, get on board that train because it's so well done. I, I yeah. was really impressed with it. And it's got some of the biggest stars in it. It's got some Richard extraordinary Roxburgh, acting. Yeah. Extraordinary Miranda acting. Otto, Kate yep. Box and is fantastic. Just, Sam Worthington. It's, yeah. yeah it's really great. good. Really good. Really, really good. Okay, fun fact, I was once in a drama about fires what? as a supporting guest and you're never going to find it on IMDb because they spelt my name wrong in the credits. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> your, you know, early life, I don't know how you fit it all in. Like when did you do that? Honestly, were you 12? Some years ago. No, I wasn't 12. I was an adult. I was playing a mother. You were playing a, a mother? Dad. Yeah, I had a husband and a child in the um, – I was like a supporting guest and – and um, How many years ago was this? Was it a popular show? Were you on Home and Away? No, I wasn't on Home and Away, but my scene was with Jeremy Sims. <laughs> Jeremy the bottom Sims? No, I was not on Chances. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to have to send me a link to that. We don't have to talk about it so they don't – everyone in the world doesn't have to see it, but I'm – I'm going to need to see that. I'm sorry. I can't believe I didn't know this. <laughs> you, see, you are just constantly full of surprises, Valerie. All right. Where do we find you online, Al? 
you will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 